Today on Peace Talks Radio, the story of a remarkable online gathering of peacemakers. Today we talk with one of the architects of the event, Stephen Dynan of the Shift Network. So for Peace Week, we, uh, we thought we would partner with Peace Alliance to create something that was the largest virtual gathering of peace leaders that we believe has ever been created. And we'll hear clips from some of the most compelling conversations during Peace Week. You know, there are so many instances where people are willing to take risks to try to make this a better world. We have to look at and, and begin to provide opportunities for interfaith dialogue. There does come a time when we've got to ask, what is the ultimate impact of telling these stories? And particularly, we've got to look at the stories where there's an enemy, where there's a bad guy. In the past, peace may have been the domain of the altruistic, but in this age, it's in everyone's self-interest. That's today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We put the spotlight on peacemakers throughout history and today, whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. For those of us interested in peace building, our perfect conference might be a week-long visit to a place where 75 of the leading thinkers and doers in peace work were all gathered at one time, featured on panels and in conversations that we could sit in on to draw inspiration and useful tips for making peace in our own lives. Well, in 2010, such a gathering did take place, not in a physical space, but in the virtual space of the Internet, as two organizations teamed up to present Peace Week, a series of online conversations with 75 peacemakers that utilized teleconference technology to allow anyone with access to a computer or smartphone to be able to not only tune in live to the sessions, but to also ask questions and interact sometimes. Now all of those sessions are archived online, and we're going to sample just a fraction of some of the more compelling ones today on Peace Talks Radio. And our guide is one of the architects of Peace Week. Stephen Dynan is CEO of the Shift Network and a member of the Evolutionary Leadership Council. He's the former director of membership and marketing at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. The Shift Network teamed up with the Peace Alliance to create Peace Week in 2010 to wrap around September 21st, International Peace Day of that year. And Stephen joins us now from his home in San Rafael, California. Stephen Dynan, welcome to Peace Talks Radio. Thank you for the warm and generous introduction. Well, you had to give a few of them yourself during uh, Peace Week, didn't you? <laughs> they became a bit of a blur with 75 of them. <laughs> hey, I want to ask you more about the Shift Network and the Peace Alliance in a moment. But first, can you describe the earliest what-if conversations that you were engaged with about creating this Peace Week event with all these uh, peace leaders from around the world? Well, I'd, I'd like to say it was something that we uh, developed over a long, you know, long and thoughtful period of time over many years. But the truth is that we launched the Shift Network as a company early in 2010, and we did a number of different series: one with spiritual leaders, one with inspiring women, and sometime in the spring, recognized that a a peace conference centered around the International Day of Peace would be really valuable. So for Peace Week, we uh, we thought we would partner with Peace Alliance, which are good friends and, and partners of ours in other endeavors, to create something that was the largest uh, virtual gathering of peace leaders that had we believe has ever been created. 
Out of the 75 guests, I asked Stephen to suggest several that he thought, for whatever reason, offered especially good insight. We're about to hear some excerpts from the longer conversations, which are, by the way, as Stephen suggested, all available online for download. But before we begin, Stephen Dynan, tell me a little bit about the goals and services of the Shift Network, which is a for-profit business, yes, that offers what exactly? Yeah, so we're we're really amplifying conscious change work, and the, I, I believe that we're in the midst of a whole systems shift from one paradigm of being to a new one, one that's more holistic, sustainable, conscious, and healthy, and and prosperous as well. And and the shift towards peace as an operating principle is is certainly a, a key ingredient of that larger shift. So we've done work, we've done series with spiritual teachers on personal growth, sustainability, holistic health. We did an enlightened business summit, a healthy money summit. And then we offer courses that come out of these larger free events that allow people to go deeper. So that's the business model is we we basically offer free content to 98% of the people who participate. And the 2 or 3% that decide they want to go deeper, we have longer uh, processes or trainings and courses that they go through. And it's been a real win-win situation. We we actually tithe off the uh, top line revenue for the company, and so we've been very, you know, been cutting nice checks to all these different nonprofits that we partner with, and uh, we were donating a chunk of the uh, ec- founding equity to um, different nonprofits as well. So we're, we're looking at this as sort of a hybrid business model where it's it's uh, a truly socially responsible business that's that's serving the collective change needs of today. Well, let's get into some of the Peace Week conversations, Stephen. Uh, you recommended we listen to a bit of Ocean Robbins. Tell us just a little bit about who Ocean Robbins is. Well, Ocean is the son of John Robbins, who's been a prominent uh, author and social activist, uh, wrote Diet for New America. And so Ocean was engaged very early in positive change making. I think he, he launched uh, the Youth for Environmental Sanity when he was 16 years old. And started working with youth around the world, creating youth jams, bringing together youth leaders from different nations, healing old so, old divides, empowering them in their work. And uh, I believe this ocean has spoken to, you know, somewhere in the range of three to 500,000 uh, youth worldwide and student assemblies, just empowering them to make this, to, to make a shift to a living more sustainable, conscious um, way, and then to help empower them as activists as well. Mm-hmm. In the clip we chose, Ocean Robbins starts with some advice about how important perspective and what he might call useful thinking and framing can be in helping to set a peaceful tone. Let's listen. At some point, we've got to ask not just what stories are true, but what stories are useful. I mean, if, if, if I have a thought, for example, I think um, it's a fearful thought. For example, I think, oh, my kids are going to come home from school today. I have nine-year-old twins. If I think they're going to come up from school today and they're going to be really cranky and um, probably, you know, hitting each other all the time, so I've got to prepare to deal with that, then, uh, then I've got to ask myself, well, is that thought useful? It might be useful if it helps me to be fully available when they get home, to greet them with enthusiasm, but it might not be useful if it causes me to want to shut the door and not be around them when they get home because I'm afraid of their grouchiness. And um, so a lot of times in our lives, we carry belief systems and thoughts about what's, what we expect or what our history is. We frame our world through those belief systems and thoughts. And they have a tremendous impact on not only how we see things, but on what we do. 
And I am interested often not in what is the correct way to perceive, but what is the most useful way to perceive. What will help me to meet life's challenges and opportunities with the best of who I am? And to be responsive and resilient to what comes. And so on a cultural level, we have a lot of myths. We have a lot of stories that we tell. And they have deep meaning to a lot of people. And you're right. There, there does come a time when we've got to ask, what is the ultimate impact for our children, for our lives, for our families, for our communities of telling these stories? And particularly, we've got to look at the stories where there's an enemy, where there's a bad guy, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, whether, whether it's Jewish people or Arabs or Muslims or Christians or fundamentalists of any kind or non-believers. Whatever our story is, if there's a bad guy, if there's an enemy, if there's a villain, then we've got to take a serious look at what the cost is of villainizing and demonizing people. And we may passionately disagree with their actions. We may think they are vile, and not only do we find them offensive, but we may think that they are destructive and violent to others. At the same time, can we continue to hold love and respect for the individual? As Dr. King said, we must hate the sin, but love the sinner. So I'm constantly looking at what does it mean to do that, and what are the stories and worldviews that will help us with that. And one of the worldviews that I find really useful is one that honors diversity, that celebrates unique perspectives, so that when I hear someone say something I don't agree with, my reaction can be, oh, maybe I'm about to learn something. At the same time, I'm not going to give up on what I believe just because I'm listening to somebody else. We have to stay true to who we are and what we know uh, and keep listening for the deeper interpretations of that knowing. I'm interested in taking stands more than positions. And part of what that means to me is that a stand is for life, and a position is about a particular issue or policy. And sometimes positions need to change in order to be true to the stand that we hold as we receive new information and as our world evolves. So I'm interested in a willingness to evolve in my positions and also an absolute commitment to be true to my core intentions. I feel like I'm in this world because I want to bring more love into this world, more peace into this world, more justice and beauty into this world. And those are stands that are with me and I believe will be with me for my entire life. And my methodology for doing so may change and evolve. What are some of the other skills or, or patterns or skills or um aspects of building, being a peace builder that you've seen are really key as working with leaders around the world. What are some of the skills that have been necessary to really for them to be successful in peace building work? Well, persistence is pretty important. You know, you can take a step in any darn direction you want, but it's thousands of steps to get you somewhere. And so I think that it's really, uh, it matters not just uh, what direction we head, but how long we keep going and how persistent and steady we are in that. And I really believe in creating good habits because the truth is that we don't have time to constantly re-examine everything we do. So we try to make the wisest choices we can, think things through, and get in good habits, whether it's with nutrition, with spiritual practice, with communication styles, with uh, work ethic, with um, many of the other things that we may value how do we create around us patterns and opportunities that support us in doing the right thing day in and day out and break those habits that we know are counterproductive and destructive to our lives? Uh, 
mm. whether it's watching TV or binging on junk food or thinking junk thoughts or <laughs> getting caught up in, in things that we know are, are counterproductive, uh, the more we can catch that and listen to our inner guidance and honor it, the healthier we're going to be. And have compassion for ourselves. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall flat sometimes. That's okay. I, I believe that, that the same dynamics in which we tend to demonize other people play out in-house, so to speak, that we often demonize parts of ourselves that we're unwilling to acknowledge or haven't come to terms with. And so I am also a big believer in supporting leaders of all kinds in not just trying to give the inspiring presentation on the stage, but to be authentic and to bring more consciousness to what is so in us and in our world so that we can build our lives on real ground, on something that matters and something that's true. Because we don't need more big talk nearly so much as we need more authentic action. That's youth leadership expert Ocean Robbins urging us toward working both inside ourselves and out to reduce our tendency to demonize others and parts of ourselves. In conversation with Stephen Dynan during Peace Week, the uh, online conference that the Shift Network put together in September of 2010. Stephen, now another powerful youth leader that you featured was Akila Shirell, who's famous for in 1992 brokering a peace agreement between rival Los Angeles gangs, the Crips and the Bloods. Now, had he been in gangs himself earlier in his life? He um, he was part of the the whole environment of, of gang environment. He wasn't as active, I believe, as as some other people. Um, but he certainly was part of the the, the culture, and he had his own uh, epiphanies of kind of waking up from certain patterns of how he was engaging other people, and and that led him to come back and and really take responsibility for shifting things and bringing people together across uh, turf lines. I don't know the actual statistics, but it was. Um, many-fold drop in murder rates and crime rates over the subsequent five years as they really got to the core issues and started to broker truce. Well, so since that time, Akila has traveled the world advising on peacemaking, and he's set up agencies devoted to getting resources into urban communities to help uh, stem the tide of violence. So in, in this selection from his Peace Week conversation with you, Stephen, he talks a bit about what he terms the reverence movement, a peace process that allows people to go deep within, transform wounds into gifts, as he says, to share with others. And as we'll hear, in addition to losing something like 13 of his friends to gang violence, he also lost one of his sons to violence. Mm -hmm. This is Akila Shirill. So, you know, my my work now uh, centers a lot around, uh, like, um, utilizing the, the situation of gangs as a way of kind of going deeper and saying, hey, what's, you know, what's happening with your personal life? Um, you know, what, what are you going through? Um, and, you know, how do you, how do you find love in your life? And uh, it's, you know, it's been real interesting. Just curious, like, what is it that really creates a sense of safety that allows uh, people who've been, you know, often pretty defended to open mm-hmm. up and really share about the wounds and the, and the deeper deeper secrets? Um, in many cases, me, I have to kind of expose my secrets. Sharing a deep secret um, yourself actually gives others permission to do the same. You tell folks about the things that you've experienced, that you've gone through, and then folks are like, okay, they, they feel less um, like alien to the process, you know, that, uh, you know, they're like, wow, that happened to you too? And folks are always shocked. 
you know, when they hear me share about what was my inspiration for doing the work, you know, I tell them that I, I shared with a woman when I was in college for the first time that I was sexually abused as a kid and that this kind of like became my opening, uh, that, um, that today, you know, that experience in my life has become my greatest gift. I mean, um, I don't condone what the perpetrator did. However, I do recognize that it's given me a um, almost like a sense of a, a level of clairvoyance you know that I, I connect with people who had who have had that similar experience in a very deep way, and I can almost sense you know when it's happened to someone. You know, as you know, um, uh, uh, back in 2004, January of uh, 2004, my oldest son, who was a student at uh, Humboldt State University, was home on winter break and was killed at a party. Um, uh, 19 years old, and just uh, uh, just a random thing, you know. Some kid walked up behind him. You know, I don't know if there was words exchanged or whatever happened, but the kid just pulled out a gun and shot him five times and killed him. And I mean, you know, to this day, I don't, I don't know all of the details surrounding what happened, but um, there were 50 other young folks out there that that night that my son was murdered. And you know, um, and this is something that happens over and over again in the neighborhood. No one said anything. No one was willing to come forward and testify about what they saw. Because um, to speak about it, you know, we have this rule in the neighborhood of not snitching. Um, to speak about it means that you expose yourself, you know, uh, both personally and, um, and like kind of collectively to a violence that exists in the community. And it's kind of like sewn into our DNA in a certain sense that uh, folks have historically seen, you know, people murdered and killed for speaking like truth. Um, and it's it's so kind of like interwoven in our in our uh, in our person that you know we see horrific things happen like this and we basically shut down as opposed to uh, speaking up about it. And I mean, I could have easily called out the wolves on this young man who took my son's life and and took his life, but uh, you know, instead I was like, you know, no, there's something there's something happening. There's something happened to this kid, 17 years old, that caused him to have a callous heart that caused him to take another human being's life. I'm like, you know, there was a violation that happened. And um, I'd like to be able to hold space for one day of being able to ask him, like, what happened? You know, I'd like to meet his parents and ask his parents, like, where they feel like they lost connection with their child or if they ever had a connection. And then, you know, support the process in him getting the proper counseling, therapy, or whatever healing modality is necessary so that he can begin to live some sort of a balanced life. Because his life is intrinsically connected to Terrell's for the rest of his life. Um, his ability to live some sort of a, of a normal life uh, hinges upon um, him being able to reconcile what he did, to not define himself as a murderer, but, but see himself acting out of the wounds in his own life. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a redemption quality um, that, that, uh, that also, to me, is present in reverence. You know, forgiveness, you know, as, a, as an initiation, is a, is a quality that's also um, present in this idea of a reverence movement, that um, you forgive yourself first, you know, before you actually forgive the perpetrator. And it doesn't mean you're happy, chummy, chummy, kissing the perpetrator, walking down the street, holding hands. No, it means that, um, that once you've forgiven yourself, it moves you to that place of compassion where you can put yourself in the shoes of the perpetrator and really know and understand what it is to be deeply wounded and to act out of that place so that um, that we could have more compassion and empathy, you know, for, for, for humanity and for human beings because, 
nobody is innocent, you know. We um we we we've all kind of like played a role in it either as as perpetrators or victims or as perpetuators um of it. Um my my I got involved with the forgiveness project um uh early before my son was murdered and uh one of the 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 um folks in the organization was asking me like, "Well, you know, you did the peace treaty between the Crips and Bloods. Like, where are you forgiving? Have you ever killed anyone?" I was like, "No, I've never killed somebody." I said, but I've been a bystander to many people being murdered. And I said, uh, you know, as a bystander, I'm almost just as responsible because I said nothing about what happened. I said, because to see that, I'm like triggered my own wounds and my own insecurities and my own secrets. And, I, and I'm like, so therefore I'm just as responsible for what happened, you know, because I said nothing to, to the victim's family and I said nothing to the perpetrator. And I'm like, so we're, we're complicit you know, to the violence that's happening in the culture, and we're not saying anything about it. You know, I, I connected to this work around reverence is because it's a it's a conversation that I find myself in consistently about how do I balance the gift and the wound in my own life, um, and and then you know be able to 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 bring that forward. Urban peacemaker Akila Sharil in conversation with Stephen Dynan during the Peace Week event in 2010. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. Today we're visiting with Stephen Dynan of the Shift Network, who helped develop the virtual gathering Peace Week. We'll hear more excerpts from his conversations with innovative peacemakers right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. Those who say to you that there can't be peace on earth are those who are not working for it. This is Nobel Peace Prize laureate Betty Williams, who won the prize with Mairead McGuire in 1976 for her work promoting a peaceful resolution to the troubles in Northern Ireland. Because there can't be peace on earth. It's not the airy-fairy. Peace is something that we have in our lives every single day, in our homes, with our children, with our relationships. So why can't we develop that and make a better world for us all? Because everybody wants it. You know, if you speak to a person, they'll tell you they don't want war. The Irish used to say all the time, oh, I don't want war. But they were committing war in the name of God. So once you bring that fact to the fore and start actually working for peace. It's not easy. Nobody ever told us it was. And the work that has to be done to cure the world is going to be very hard. There's no easy way through it. 
but if we're committed to it, we can do it. I know we can. Our movement in Northern Ireland didn't solve all the problems, but what happened was it made the work peace, word peace and the work of peace respectable and respected. So we can all do it. And that's exactly the way peace people should work, not expecting immediate results because this world didn't get in this mess overnight. So we're not going to get it out of this mess overnight. And I'm going towards 70 years old. So whatever I start today, at least I know when I leave the world, it will be ongoing and I can die happy. Nobel Peace Prize laureate Betty Williams, still working for peace, as heard in her conversation with Stephen Dynan of the Shift Network during Peace Week online conference in 2010. The Shift Network and the Peace Alliance put on this virtual peace conference online with teleconferencing that featured 75 peacemakers from around the world. And Stephen is online with us from California. By the way, the full conversations with these special guests can be heard online via the Shift Network, and we have a link to it on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Stephen Dynan, I wanted to go next to part of your conversation with Kimmy Weeks, who faced a brutal civil war in Liberia when he was a child and tells us of his work since then. How would you characterize the focus of his efforts by way of introduction to this clip? I'd say that he's he's really focused on the on unleashing the, the, the leadership in youth, and especially the youth that uh, have been front-line front victims of violence and have been part of it perpetrating. So he's worked a lot with child, children soldiers, uh, which is one of the most horrific aspects of the culture of violence, that we could conscript uh, 12, even 12-year-old, 13-year-old children into, into the acts of war. And the psychological damage that comes from that, but he's he's been very successful in helping to to shift that psychology, heal the wounds, and and really help some of these kids actually become peace leaders. And then later on in 1996, we were living in the capital where we had some security, but around us there were 20,000 children who were fighting in the Liberian War and killing each other. Uh, and, and committing some of the worst atrocities. I mean, the youngest child who fought in the Liberian Civil War, uh, according to UNICEF, was six years old, who fought oh. and was disarmed. So you're talking about really young children. So we said that, listen, if we cannot end the entire war, the least we can do as children ourselves is to convince the rebel leaders to let the children go, convince the rebel leaders and the rebel commanders that children should not be fighting. And so with funding from UNICEF, we went out into the rural areas and started talking to these rebel leaders and rebel commanders and going from place to place, trying to convince them and getting them uh, to sign uh, petitions and, and record voice messages, essentially saying that at the end of that year, all the children fighting for them should lay down their guns. And that was a huge fight uh, for us. And, and it was just a beautiful moment because in that time, we were also able to rally hundreds of children, hundreds of young people across the country to protest for peace and, and start this big national movement. But now one of the things about child soldiers and former child soldiers is that imagine a 10-year-old child being forced from their family, uh, being forced into a rebel group, uh, being forced to kill someone in their community, being forced to commit atrocity. They essentially lost an entire childhood. 
um, and, and the process of helping to heal them after the war has ended is probably one of the hardest tasks where we work right now. We work in post-war countries, and the reason we work in post-war countries is to try to make sure that we can set in place the mechanisms to prevent countries like Liberia and Sierra Leone from falling back into war. And we believe the way we can do that is first by educating uh, 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 the minds, reaching out and touching uh, the minds of the young people, of the nation, providing uh, various avenues for healing, but also educating people that another world is possible, not a world that we use arm and violence uh, to succeed, but a world is possible where we can work together and see and enjoy prosperity. And then also providing the vocational training for them, the basic skills in carpentry, in auto mechanics, in plumbing, jewelry making, sewing, tie-dyeing, useful skills that these young people who otherwise would have no opportunities can learn, and then finally giving them a microloan to start their businesses. And we think that with the combination of these things, when these young people have the opportunity and someone comes to them and say, there's a gun, let's go fight, they will think twice and say no. I won't do that because I'll be destroying what I've built for myself and my family. So this is the hope that, uh, that I have and, and all of uh, Youth Action International has for Africa. That's Kimmy Weeks, who's formed partnerships and led organizations that have provided education to thousands of students in West Africa to lead them to a more peaceful future. Today we're visiting with Stephen Dynan of the Shift Network, who helped develop the virtual gathering Peace Week. During Peace Week in 2010, you also featured a few people who engaged on the topic of economics and peace, and you talked with Steve Kilalea, who was instrumental in developing the Global Peace Index. Now, our clip with him doesn't explain that exactly. Can you give a quick layman's description of the, the Global Peace Index? It's, uh, it's an application of statistical principles to the uh, economics around peace. So it shows that cities or countries that score high on the peace index, it's positively correlated with um, metrics for success of the economy, for local businesses. It cuts down on waste and corruption. So it basically makes the economic case that if you invest in the foundations of peace building at all levels in the society, that there's a, a big ROI, a return on investment for the society. So part of what, the reason why that's really important is that a lot of the peace-building world has been um, more pro- progressive or left-wing, and there's a, there's a perception sometimes of peace-building work is sort of the, it's the do-gooder work, but it's not as practical in terms of the, the, the economy and business and jobs. And, and the truth is that if you don't have a foundation of peace in the society, that there's a deep undermining of the economic foundation as well. And so people who are more oriented towards prioritizing that, they they stand up and take notice. When, when you see these very clear indications that the more peace in a society, the more prosperity there is. So here's Steve Kilalea talking more about that. Well, I think there's a uh, whole uh, body of work which is still to be done around uh, the value of peace for the global economy and exactly how uh, companies can uh, 
go about analysing their markets and their cost structures uh, so they can get a better understanding of what impacts changing levels of peacefulness will have on their markets. And that then will give them a much more insight into uh, uh, where they should be engaging and where they should be disengaging. So what are some of the, um, what are the easiest things that countries can do to really uh, ramp up on their overall score on the peace index that, that don't necessarily take huge outlays of infrastructure but that have this kind of <clears throat> holism and uh, really addressing the core roots of, of violence in the society. I'll go, just go through maybe the eight uh, key structures. So there are three uh, which are, uh, we see as the main structures. And, and the first one is a sound business environment. So unless you've got the economists which are functioning well, uh, there's no outlet for people to uh, productively uh, utilise themselves. So the second is the well-functioning government. And uh, we'll see, we also see uh, the international community putting a lot of emphasis there, but quite often it's more with governments they can work with rather than ones which, can, uh, which function well. And the third one, which is key, is the equitable distribution of resources. So that doesn't mean equal distribution of resources. It means equitable. It means that the resources of the society are distributed in such a way that the participants in those societies see it as equitable. Now, underpinning that is, and it flows through all of them, uh, is five other structures. The first is what we define as free flow of information, and that would be maybe epitomised as the freedom of the press. But you could also look at it in a business environment as being the ability to be able to uh, correctly price a transaction, maybe correctly price a uh, stock price, and sort of free flow of information gives the ability to understand that. Low levels of corruption are key. That also obviously feeds into having well-functioning government, equitable distribution of resources and sound businesses. Acceptance of the rights of others, uh, and in many ways that is epitomised by uh, human rights. High levels of uh, education, and what's fascinating about the high levels of education uh, doesn't seem to matter what percentage of the GDP is actually uh, spent on education. What's key is that people are just actually at school. And the last one is just good relations with neighbours, and that can be neighbouring states or it might be the community which is uh, uh, living nearby you. Now, as we dig deep into this, we don't actually find it, a, uh, it is causal. What we find is the, all these different eight structures flow between each other uh, to create and uh, uh, bind with each other. So, mm. yeah, so all, yeah, all of that for me was really quite fascinating. Hmm. Okay, so if I could back up to now to a uh, macro picture. So if we look at the major issues which are facing humanity today, uh, things like climate change, if it's increasing biodiversity, full use of the fresh water on the planet, underpinning all of them, overpopulation. Unless we have a world which is basically peaceful, we'll never get the levels of trust, cooperation, inclusiveness to be able to solve these problems, let alone empower the international institutions to create the policies and governance. Therefore, what we'd argue is that peace is a prerequisite for the survival of society as we know it in the 21st century. 
And that is different in any other epoch in history. In the past, peace may have been the domain of the altruistic, but in this age, it's in everyone's self-interest. Steve Kilalea, whose latest initiative is the not-for-profit Institute for Economics and Peace, which specializes on the linkages between business, peace, and economics. Stephen Dynan interviewed him for Peace Week, the online peace conference in 2010. And Stephen, as we noted in the first part of our program, Peace Week featured many experts who work with young people or focus on our education system and their peace work. And our next clip is from one of those, uh, Rich Dutra St. John. Uh, now, Stephen, Rich is what, a former high school teacher and wrestling coach. He's worked with teens and families for a long, long time. What do, what do you see as his strengths as a peacemaker? I think he's one of the most open-hearted men I've ever met. And he has a way of being vulnerable and loving that's uh, profoundly, profoundly empowering to people while also not really sacrificing his masculinity. As people see him, he's like a guy's guy in, in many ways. And he's also just a complete... Um, complete lover of people. And out of that combination, he's able to be incredibly vulnerable. And he's created an organization called Challenge Day that it goes in in, in, a, in a very rapid way to create a cultural shift. And it does so with a whole, this, this day of immersive day in which people are shedding their, their, their defenses and their boundaries and they're confessing their wounds and they're bridging all these divides. It's, it's a remarkable almost initiatory process that uh, a portion or the entire school will go through. Yeah, here's, here's Rich Dutra St. John talking about it. The bottom line is kids' emotional needs aren't getting met. They're going to schools with higher and higher expectations. You know, every teacher I know got into it because they cared, and then the, in many ways they're disempowered by a system that doesn't allow them to be able to teach some of the things that the kids need. Um, and I'm not saying that in, uh, across the board. I'm just saying sometimes kids are coming home. We, we call it a full emotional balloons. They come to school with full emotional balloons and we're taking out counselors. We're taking out all of the emotional supports and we're saying, okay, show up and do this thing. And then we add to it the feelings uh, that they're dealing with, um, the uh, social norm of um, one-upsmanship or, or the social norm of um, being in this group and pushing that person away. Um, are causing young people not to show up and academically do what they need to do, not to, to um, not emotionally be able to do what they do, and to feel disconnected. We actually think that uh, the biggest problems in schools are separation, isolation, and loneliness, and it's where we can young people compare their insides to other people's outsides and figure that here's the right way to be, here's the wrong way to be. Um, that's cool. This isn't cool. I'm not cool. And somehow, without getting to know each other. They are left just trying to survive, and that's why where If You Really Knew Me comes from. It's like, let's see what's really going on in your heart. Let's find out what really matters. Let's find out um, if you're stuck in school, make it safe enough to ask for help, ask for you know, support. Tell somebody you don't know instead of having to act like you do. Yeah, well, I'd love to yeah turn into the, into that um, into the positives that are happening because I know that there's so many lives being touched and hearts being opened and talk about how you guys can go in and really in a, a very short period of time um, catalyze a, a deep cultural shift and a healing for a lot of folks um, and maybe how how you've structured things um, so that 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 can happen. 
I actually call it creating peace from the inside out. It's, 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 we get to be the heroes we've been waiting for, whoever it is, and giving young people a permission to actually see who they really are, see the reflection of their connection with each other, um, that um, have them identify that they have more in common than different. And, and that's where that compassion for each other's experience starts to happen. And then from that opening of discussion, um, there is where healing starts to take place. The school, the educators, the people in the room get to see, oh, here's what's really needed. Um, it's not personal to me that that kid's acting out in class. It's not personal to me that they didn't do their homework. It's, per it's what's going on in their life. So how do we as adults hold hands as a society to be able to give kids what they need in school? So that's all we do in the day is we show them what's possible. We get them to see they have more in common than different, and then we give them a roadmap, a path, the reason we started the be the, what we called the Be the Change movement was because young people and adults were saying, well, what do we do? And I said, well, you don't have to wait for anybody else to change things, right? So like Gandhi said, we must be the change you wish to see. So what happens is we start first noticing, as I mentioned that earlier, we notice what's happening, choose how we'd like it to be, and then take some small action. And the first thing would be to be a stand for what you believe. Second is to go share it with other people and as quickly as possible to join hands in creating a community that, that actually does at least one positive thing every single day. Like in, for, for me, it's like if I create peace from inside out, that means I'm going to walk out and I see someone getting teased. I'll say something about it if I see paper on the floor that needs to be picked up, I might be the one who makes the choice to pick that up. Um, it's really fun for me to watch how many young people get online and blog their acts of change or how many people on their own, even when their school isn't quite on board, are actually being the change in little and, little and big ways every single day. Facilitator and counselor Rich Dutra St. John, you're listening to Peace Talks Radio. More from the Peace Week conversations in just a moment. Listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We have scores of our programs archived online at peacetalksradio.com. Today we're visiting with Stephen Dynan of the Shift Network, who helped develop the virtual gathering Peace Week in 2010 that featured scores of peacemakers from around the world in a virtual online conference. And we're sampling some of those conversations today on Peace Talks Radio. We've got Stephen Dynan on the line with us, and Stephen, we're really grateful for. Uh, you allowing us to spread the reach of these conversations a little further with our listeners. 
it's it's a it's a great way to do it and I, I love that we're able to pull out some of the real gems uh and bring them together in a way that just shows the multi-dimensional aspects of 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 peace that are and and how many people are doing great work on different fronts to 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 move us out of a whole era in which violence was acceptable into a new era in which peace is the foundation of society it's a bit of a greatest hits collection yeah but all of the full-length conversations are available uh, online, and we have a link uh, directly to Peace Week. You have to sign in, but once you do, you can get access to uh, all of the MP3s from Peace Week 2010. Next, we're going to hear from Audrey Scott Williams, who describes herself as a peace walker, a vision keeper. She's a human rights activist and an author, and she has walked all around the U.S. and Africa and other places to make her point about peace, what do you think of the impact of these peace walk events? I'm sure there are some who are skeptical about these symbolic acts. Stephen Dynan, what do you think? Well, after listening to Audrey, I was convinced of the value, both for the people who are participating, but she has a, an interesting angle where she sees that part of the walks that she's doing are actually consciously engaging kind of um, unresolved collective wounds, if you will. Uh, there was, I think, the first walk she did was was retracing part of the Underground Railroad, and she was consciously doing spiritual practices to to work out the, you could call it the unhealed karma of the of of the United States between blacks and whites and the civil and and, and the time of slavery, and it, and it feels like th- there's a way in which um, the act of walking together creates this solidarity and a sense of community and a sense of positive purpose. And then I think when you add in this other element of what you could maybe call like a form of subtle activism, that uh, something quite extraordinary is happening there. So here's some of Audrey Scott Williams' message during Peace Week. We have to look at and and begin to provide opportunities for interfaith dialogue. Uh, I think one of the most um, Isolated. I don't want to say isolated, but one of the places that we, we tend to stay in our boxes is in our religion. And we have to begin to think about religion, valuing everybody's religion, valuing all of our differences to make a difference in our communities and, and in our nation. And so I think we have to begin with our inner faith, how we bring various faith and spiritual practices together to begin to, to acknowledge each other's space, if you will, but to also say, you know, our, our God, whatever that may be, God, may be called, source, creator, what have you, embraces us all. We, we all come out of that. So I think we need, a lot of, we need to do a lot of work on the inner faith, and that's certainly a major part of what we do in every city that we go through. Uh, the second is um, we, we need to also look at how we relate to one another and how what we see with our physical eye if you just open up your eye and walk, what do you see and what is the story that comes out? If we're speaking one thing about what we value, we value our children, we value our resources, and yet what we see is children who are being left out of the opportunity and access uh, uh, cycle, that are, being, that are hungry, and, and, and we have more children in poverty now than I don't have my statistics in front of me, but more than we've had maybe ever uh, since we've been collecting statistics in a, in a, uh, as we look at it from a per capita standpoint, uh, health issues. Uh, so if we're saying we're valuing these things and then the outpicturing of that is the contrary of that, 
then that alone just simply says we're not doing something right. And we don't have to put a value, a personal value to it yet, but just to simply acknowledge that something's wrong with the picture. It's not measuring up to what we say we're doing. The real challenge and opportunity here is to say, I can dream this world a better place. I can dream my community a better place. And that means for me is that, okay, we're standing in the midst of what we see. Let's take it to the next level. What can we do to make this story different two years from now, six years from now, ten years from now? And that's what we want to feed and give energy to, and we're, we're putting um, uh, peace zones in each of the places that we go with some kind of demarcation, whether it's a peace pole, a peace garden, but something that is a trigger for the community so that it doesn't lose its connection to what it said, what it comes up with as its dream for peace and opportunity and, and, and health and healing for its community. Peace walker Audrey Scott Williams who also said in another part of her conversation with Stephen Dynan during Peace Week that the world is waiting for the United States to lead on peacemaking, which kind of begs the question of how can the U.S. lead on peacemaking when in our own political process there's so much division. Several Peace Week forums addressed that issue, including a conversation with someone who's been on our program too, Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who's run for president a couple of times. As Stephen Dynan talked with him during Peace Week, what did you think about your half hour with Mr. Kucinich? I love Dennis. He's articulate. He's poetic. He's able to be spiritual and practical at the same time, and to do that in a political context is remarkable. I think he's also been quite visionary in, in moving forward the Department of Peace work and other uh, innovative legislation, and I, I think he was great during our session. Here's Dennis Kucinich during the Peace Week conversations. Our political culture, and indeed the, the, the macro culture, has derived from a type of thinking, a, a philosophical approach to life that involves um, seeing the world in terms of, of divisions. Uh, it's what I would call dichotomous thinking, us versus them, black versus white, rich versus poor, young versus old, Christians versus Muslims versus Jews. And that kind of thinking, which looks at the world only in terms of polar opposites, creates such polarity that it, uh, it, it helps to uh, percolate conflict and uh, is a precursor to war. Uh, if we are going to have a different outcome in this world and in our politics and in our economics, uh, then we have to examine more carefully the impact of the way we think because uh, action uh, necessarily follows our consciousness. And we, we have to move from division to wholeness. We have to look at the world as, a, as an unbroken whole in which we are all contained as one, fulfilling the promise of America's first motto, e pluribus unum, out of many we are one. And it is in that oneness we find truth, that, that we are one. And it is in that oneness we find peace, that we are one. And I think that uh, if we are going to get to that place, we, we must first challenge uh, some underlying assumptions about the way we see the world. And so when I speak of challenging the underlying assumptions, I, I speak of actually looking at how the world is created by our thoughts.
there are those who believe you know, in, in victimization. Well, you know, there, there's also another view that says that we are not so much victims of the world we see, we become victims of the way we see the world. And if we believe the world is, a, is an evil, um, wicked place without redemption, uh, we help to seal our own fate. And on the other hand, if we see the world as, uh, as being ultimately a place where we can work out our, our, our fate uh, in a way that can, um, where, where all of mankind can uh, move uh, towards a, a better path, towards a more enlightened path, towards a path of, of, of peace and justice, uh, then we, through our deeds, uh, following that type of thinking, can uh, help create the self-fulfilling prophecy of, uh, of an ascending condition for mankind. If, if, if the past, the present, and the future are indeed united, uh, then, then we are, are on a journey uh, that is timeless in nature and that uh, every moment when we act, uh, we are acting within the context of, of eternity. Eternity is not something beyond our grasp. It is something that we are within and contained within. And so uh, everything lends itself to uh, transformation. Uh, transformation is not simply a condition that happens at the, at the end of a journey. Uh, sometimes trans, you know, the journey is a transformative journey. The first step changes things. In some ways, we have to be more patient with ourselves and with each other so that we don't lock ourselves into believing because um, the conditions aren't exactly what we want at this moment. That will never happen. There's a, there's a sense uh, in which we need to plumb the deeper wisdom of uh, Shelley's um, poem, Prometheus Unbound, when he speaks of hope creating from its own wreck the thing it contemplates, that we have to be able to hope beyond hope and take our hopes, as uh, Paracelsus once wrote, uh, through, uh, in, in Latin it was uh, uh, per aspera ad astra, in, in English it's through hope to the stars. We, 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 uh, we live in that place of spirit which we then uh, bring into the material world to infuse it with spiritual principles that then uh, create the transformation. And that begins with uh, the stuff of hope. Where better to bring that than the U.S. Congress? I mean, I, 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 you know, it's a matter of, of practice here. Gandhi's life was about uh, testing principles and truth. And I think that wherever we work, and, you know, where I work, it's kind of the capital of our nation and sometimes the capital of polarized thinking. It's a, it's a good place to test the possibilities of, uh, of trying to move beyond positionality and beyond partisanship and, and connect with people heart to heart and to see what can come of that. Uh, you should know that notwithstanding what appears to be internist and partisan warfare here in Washington, uh, that uh, many members have friends on both sides of the aisle. Uh, the thought of party, the idea that there's some uh, inchoate force out there called a party that should trump communication between individuals is pretty crazy. And and so we there's a constant reaching back and forth across the aisle. But we're still not at the point where we can challenge the notion of partisanship successfully 
so that people have more options and more choices within the political system. So it's not just a binary, you know, Democrat or Republican choice. I really think that America would benefit from more of a multi-party approach and have more choices. So I'm curious about what you feel are the most inspiring examples of reaching across uh, divides, particularly in the political con uh, context. What happens every time there's a peace agreement? I mean, when you, when you look at uh, what Jimmy Carter was able to put together uh, years ago in, in creating, you know, and making a move towards peace in the Middle East, uh, where, um, where you had, you know, the, the, the leader of Israel actually put his life on the line. You know, there are so many instances where uh, people are willing to take risks to try to make this a better world. Some of them are not that well heralded. But, all of, you know, there's healing that takes place all over the country. And, you know, there are people who try to uh, settle fights inside of a school, people who, uh, who see their loved ones involved in conflict and try to lead them out of it, people who... Uh, who who see things happen on a work, in a workplace and try to uh, lend a lend a gentle tone to things. I mean this this is going on all around all around the world, and we need to we need to further that impulse and and to encourage uh, the the uh, unfolding of what Franklin Roosevelt called many years ago the science of human relations in the workplace, in our schools, in our homes. Uh, and 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 celebrate each person's contribution. Uh, you know, we have a Nobel Peace Prize that's awarded uh, uh, yearly, and and yet uh, there should be recognition uh, of of individuals at 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 that uh, very very much a local level who uh, who are performing works every day where they help to create peace. That's Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich. Uh, ending our uh, highlights of the Peace Week conversations of 2010, Stephen Dynan of the Shift Network has been guiding us through some of these clips. And again, all of the complete conversations with 75 peacemakers from around the world online. And you can find the link at peacetalksradio.com. It'll take you there. I really appreciate Stephen sharing some of the clips from that peace conference and uh, wish you a lot of luck. Thank you for joining us today on Peace Talks Radio, Stephen. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You can find links to the Shift Network and all the Peace Week audio at peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003. Order CDs of most episodes. Sign up for a free podcast and our newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. And this month, consider helping with a raffle of our second autographed piece guitar signed by John Prine, Steve Earle, Patty Griffin, Robert Cray, Brandy Carlisle, the Indigo Girls, and other stars. Details at peacetalksradio.com. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation. And Sixth Man Productions, presenters of the singer-songwriter Kayamo Cruz, online at kayamo.com. And KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.